Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app, as that helps other folks find the show, that'd be really helpful. My guest today is Kate McAndrew, principal at Bolt VC. Bolt makes pre seed and seed stage investments at the intersection of the digital and physical world, often as a first institutional investor. Some of their investments include Tonal, Vinyl, and Companion Labs. Kate has a particular affinity towards companies evolving the cultural conversation. She is also the founder of Women in Hardware, a community of female or non-binary identified people working in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. I had a blast chatting with Kate, and I'm sure you'll appreciate and learn lots of insights from our conversation. I certainly did. So without further ado, here's Kate. Thank you so much for joining me today in this turbulent period. How are you? Um, I am doing really well. I am like leading with gratitude and um, feeling really, you know, lucky to be secure in my job and to be getting to do what feels like very meaningful work with our portfolio right now. And yeah, I'm doing I'm doing great and I'm happy to be here. So thanks for having me on the podcast. No, thanks so much. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I can only imagine how how busy you are during this period with with everything that's happening. I wanted I wanted to first start at the very beginning. So how did you what attracted you to venture capital and startups and and and, and how did you uh, make your way into venture capital? So I would say I was not at all attracted to venture capital as a young person. I think it was the last industry I ever thought I went and up in. I was definitely an artsy activist kind of teenager, young person. I majored in cultural studies and art history and graduated from college into the the teeth of the global financial crisis. So 2009. Um, which was really a time when, you know, basically everyone was having to get creative with what work meant. And um, I found a, a strange, curious niche running social media accounts for um, for people and helping them with strategy with that, mostly for small, medium-sized businesses. Um, while I was, you know, trying to do side hustles in galleries and kind of maintain <laughs> maintain some connection to the arts, which was which was difficult in that. Um, in that time. But I ended up just like finding so much joy working with these executives and kind of working on strategy with them and getting to kind of look inside their businesses. And I, I kind of had a, a moment where I, I had to realize that I was probably not going to go into the art world and that there was something kind of drawing me towards business. So I took a, a detour and um, I took a year off to do AmeriCorps with Habitat for Humanity in North Carolina, actually. Uh, so I grew up in California. I'm definitely California born and bred, uh, live in San Francisco now, but I moved to the South to build houses with Habitat. And it was actually through some volunteers at the Habitat job site where I got my first investing gig, which is a totally roundabout story. But they were uh, wanting to start an accelerator program in the Southeast focused on digital health. And I didn't really know what that meant, but I thought it was pretty cool that that people that wanted to start businesses could get some money and some help and get going. And I was like, I want to be a part of that. 
So that was my first um, foray and um, did the first 10 deals there and just totally fell in love with working with founders. Very quickly moved to San Francisco. One of those companies was based in San Francisco, it was a biotech company. And they invited me to come out and stay with them in their, you know, converted warehouse in Soma. It was a bunch of like burners. And <laughs> I, I got there and I was just like, man, like there's something happening here. This is really exciting. So my husband and I took all of our savings, which wasn't that much savings, and loaded up a U-Haul and moved to San Francisco. That was six and a half years ago. And I got my first real venture job with a firm called Bolt that at the time was a $3 million fund. We were on our first fund um, based in Boston at the time. And they were um, thinking about you know, raising a second fund, opening an office in San Francisco. And they hired me to be their first um, associate here in San Francisco. And I've been with Bolt ever since. So I've had the opportunity to you know, invest part of fund one, fund two, which was $32 million and fund three, um, which is 84. And it's been a wild, wild journey um, getting to kind of become and grow into being a VC. And then also to really be also at the helm of our own startup since we're, you know, have been a startup fund these last years. Yeah. Well, first of all, what a story. I mean, you know, there's, 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 um, you know, I've heard, I've heard people that say, you know, how do you get a venture? Oh, I just fell into it. And it seems like with your, your story, it really seems like you fell into it. Uh, I think I've always been really excited about smart people doing new things. And I've always been very attracted to like, and where new things were happening, right? Like, and, and I think that, you know, it's really unmistakable that there are intersections of place and time where where kind of collective and creative genius occurs. You know, if you think about sort of Paris in the 1920s and the literary scene happening there and Gertrude Stein and Hemingway, right? That that wouldn't have happened, you know, without all of those weird ingredients in that Petri dish. And I think in, in our era, I think in 2020, that's happening in San Francisco. So, you know, if you find yourself, if you're a writer, if you're someone that loves lo- loves art and you find yourself, you know, in Paris in, in 1920, like you go, you stay, you don't, you don't right. leave, you know. And for me, I had that feeling when I arrived in San Francisco. I just knew that like these were my people and that there were interesting things to, to be done. I, th- I think you've touched on also a really good point about geographic location. Paris 1920s, maybe San Francisco now. I know that that I've had several investors on the show from LA and they would make the argument that LA is the place right now. Any advice that you might have for founders that might be are in secondary and tertiary, tertiary markets outside of these big hubs of where this maybe this innovation's happening on a, a quote unquote regular basis? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think it's different today than it was seven or eight years ago, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think the world the world has changed in some ways. In many ways, it's, it's the same. I think, honestly, it's very, very difficult to build a venture scale company, start a venture scale company um, when you're not in the ecosystem of people that have exited from those companies, where there's free capital floating around, you know, to going to those companies. And so um, I think that it's important to be really honest with yourself and say, you know, okay, it's really important to me that I live in Boca Raton, Florida for X, Y, and Z reasons. And it's really important to me that I be a founder 
right? Um, is it really important to me that I build the venture scale business, right? Would I be happy with, you know, a business that did 10 million in revenue? Or do I really feel like I want to build a billion dollar company? I think the first question I would ask is, what kind of founder are you? What truly are your aspirations? I do think it's very difficult. And if you just look at the numbers, it bears it out. It's very difficult to build billion dollar, multi-billion dollar businesses outside of the major talent hubs um, and, and funding centers. Now, obviously that's less pronounced if you're someone who has a track record. Let's say you spent 20 years in Silicon Valley and you've got a great network and you know, you've moved to Cincinnati, but you have that existing. I think that's a different situation. But generally speaking, I'll say you're going to have a harder time. It's going to be harder for you to get that first 500K in the business. It's going to be harder to know, you know, um, how to pitch for your seed round. It's going to be harder for you to find talent, I think. So I, I'm definitely not a believer that you can only start a successful business in Silicon Valley, but I do believe that it is harder to be outside of um, those core communities of, of talent and capital um, and knowledge. This reminds me a little bit of a conversation that I had with Charles Hudson and what he was saying, how like, okay, if you're located in a secondary and tertiary markets and it's, you know, talking about why you're located there, but, and he's, and he, he at least said, I can live with you being in a secondary tertiary market at the early stages. However, as you're thinking about scaling and growing, like, how are you going to hire? Like, how are you going to be, have access to, uh, to talent? And then I brought up remote teams and he was saying, okay, well, that's a different conversation because do you really have a lot of experience managing remote teams? And wanted to hear about what your thoughts were about remote teams. Well, it's ironic to make this comment when we're all working remotely course, right now due to a global pandemic. <laughs> and we're all getting a crash course in what does it mean to work remote. I honestly really believe that best case scenario is you've got all the brains in a room. I really believe that especially in the early days, you want your VP engineering sitting next to your CEO. You want your CTO sitting next to your CEO, you want your admin staff sitting right there, right? You want customer service right there. Like you really want people to have the benefit of all those little interactions, you know, that, that mm. create a culture that create, um, you know, a strategy. So I'm a big believer in, um, in working in the same place, working in the same office. I think, you know, obviously we're seeing lots of teams build, remote development teams or what have you. But, and to Charles's point, who Charles, love Charles, we have a bunch of in investments together. I do think that it's a real skill to do a remote first team. And it's not like you just do your normal schedule, but you do it over Zoom, right? There are all kinds of business functions and like just different ways that you run yourselves. So um, if we're going to see a remote first team, we do want to see that expertise as to why do we believe that this company or this team has the skills to build remote first. Um, we did just make an closing investment in a company that is based in San Diego. They are doing remote first. Um, they've been working remote first as a team for over 10 years. So, you know, in that context, um, and we had a you know, close personal relationship with one of the founders. So in that context, yeah, we're not going to let that stop us from investing, but they've also proven that they can really work together remotely and, and, um, and they've got, you know, good networks outside of, um, outside of San Diego. So it seems like based off your conversation that if a founder says we are fully remote or that's how we're planning to 
scale our operations, right? Fully, uh, fully remotely. There needs to be more almost proof that this entrepreneur has had a lot of experience working and dealing with remote teams. It's almost like another kind of not maybe speed bump or hurdle that they have to convince investors and have to have more experience. Is that fair? I'd say we have a very strong bias for, for teams that are going to work together in the same room, uh, you know, located together. And we do consider it a hurdle that we have to get over um, as investors if the company is going to be remote first. And it does raise the bar on what we expect from that company to have experience with running remote first teams. Now, do you think in terms of the times that we currently live in, everybody being remote, that do you think there might be a bit of a shift at the early st- for early stage investors about how they're thinking about investing in remote teams, maybe being more open to remote teams? Honestly, I think of the things that are going to change about early stage investing over the next two years, remote versus not remote is not going to be one of the top things that changes. Mm. So I think we're really dealing with a major sea change here with the global pandemic, as well as with the resulting recession, you know, highest unemployment rate in history. Uh, And that is going to send shockwaves through the venture ecosystem through the consumer products, you know, consumer founders ecosystem that are going to far outweigh, you know, in-person versus versus remote. Talk to me a little bit about your due diligence process and in, in, and how do you, um, and when there isn't enough data, um, what qualities are you thinking about? Um, and how do you, uh, and founders and how are you analyzing teams? Yeah. So Bolt very much operates as a team. So it's not Kate's deal or Axel's deal or Matt's deal or Tyler's deal. We really do operate as a team. And so we do diligence as a team, right? So very important. Again, this goes back to the importance of face-to-face. I've never, I don't think I've ever done an investment where I haven't spent significant time with the founder face-to-face, right? We're investing in pre-seed, you know, typically or pre-product or there's maybe an early MVP, but a huge part of what we're backing is, is the team. Um, and it's not just the obvious things that you might think of, like what the team has accomplished. It's not, where did you go to college? Or do you have a big tech company on your resume? We're really trying to assess for how does this founder, how does this team think about problems? How do they think about their business, right? Because at this stage that we're investing, you know, I can ask 10 questions, 20 questions to try and get a sense of, is this person full of shit or not, right? And there's a little bit of that that goes on of the like, is okay, let's put the bullshit detector out there. But once you get past that, you know, you're early on in the business that what people are doing is giving best guesses. So we're looking for how do people think about problems? We're looking for how do they take feedback, right? Let's say we do an operating plan review and you know, the first cut of the operating plans a mess, right? Doesn't make sense. They're burning way too much cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we'll give them really clear feedback. And, you know, I look for, does that founder come back to me 24 hours later, 48 hours later saying, hey, I really heard your feedback. I put together a revised plan. You know, would you mind taking a look, right? Or does that, does that founder not really, not really circle back or say, yeah, those are some good thoughts, but there's no new plan or the revised plan hasn't really taken the feedback into account. So we'll also look at like, how much can we work with this team, right? Are they, are they good at, um, good at listening, 
Um, so that's kind of another, another kind of qual more qualitative thing that, um, that we're doing in the diligence process. And so how many, like how, how long does your diligence process take at the pre-seed stage, uh, uh, typically? And has there been a situation where maybe on like the first, first call or, 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 um, or rather first import it, it, in person meeting, um, where a founder has blown you away truly and you've you know made investment very uh uh you know very quickly yeah so i'll say we invest a pre-seed but we write relatively large checks at pre-seed we're taking a lead position we're often taking a board seat you know oftentimes our check is 500k to a million dollars so it's we don't we're not sprinkling money around at pre-seed it's not hey yeah sure take this i like you take this 100k and let's see if you do something with it right our strategy is really more kind of old school venture you know we back founders early we do the work um we want to be collaborative partners so i'm expecting to spend the next two years you know three years of my life doing board meetings with this company at, you know once a month and doing a lot of work in between so we take each of our deals very seriously. Now, very seriously doesn't have to mean slowly, right? So I would say typical typical process from first meeting to term sheet, I would say a single digit number of weeks, you know, mm. probably maybe th three weeks, um, in part because, you know, we have a partnership. And so, you know, I need to get comfortable with the, with the investment such that I'm excited about it. Um, I need to expose that investment to my partners. We collectively need to come up with a set of questions that we need to answer to be confident in the deal, right? And then, and you know, do references, et cetera. Um, so that takes time. We'll talk to subject matter experts, et cetera. So, um, so I would say it's a single digit number of weeks. That said, um, the biggest check we've ever written in a pre-seed company was this fall. It's still unannounced. And I think we went from first meeting to term sheet in three days. It was competitive. We knew we'd seen it first. We were going up against, you know, much larger funds. And we we just really, as a team, decided this was a deal we wanted to win and we played to win. So uh, we put a term sheet on the table in 48 hours. And that, and that was fast for us. Um, that was fast for us. Yeah, three days. That sounds very fast. Wanted to talk a little bit about the board. For first-time CEOs and founders, what do you see them maybe struggle with the most or have a hard time with the most when they've, you know, raised some institutional capital now have developed their first board? Yeah. So, you know, in the early days, typically the, the board is, it's not the way that you would normally think of a board, right? When you, when you think of the big boardroom and it's really about governance and approvals, that's not what an early stage board is like, right? An early stage board for us anyway is you know a regular you know shorter than typical board meeting so it's usually a two-hour meeting every four to six weeks and it's an opportunity for for us to sit down usually with either one of the founders or both founders depending on on who's on the board sometimes there's another investor like i'm on a couple boards with charles um we'll we'll do boards together so we're very it's not it doesn't have to be just us we're open to having you know other people there but it is good to keep it small right you want this to be a small group and the idea is that these, this is the team that's going to help think through the strategic decisions and create operational cadence in the business, right? So it's starting that drumbeat of, this is what we said we were going to do last month. This is what we did. Here's what we're going to do next month. 
and here's how our plan needs to change based on these new realities that have popped up, right? So it's kind of setting that setting that operational drumbeat for the founders. I think the other really important thing about being a board member is board members are not operators, right? Like I am never going to know as much about a given topic of what's going on in a portfolio company than that CEO. It's not my job to come in and tell the CEO what they should do, right? The value that I can bring is to be at 10,000 feet and to ask really good questions and to help that CEO make good decisions, right? So I also think you want a working board. You want a board that's going to be working on projects with you in between board meetings, et cetera. But you want a board that you want, you want board members that also understand their role as really coaches, or I like to use sort of midwife metaphors of the doula, you know, helping you kind of make that go on that journey, but not trying to run the company for you. Um, Because I think that's a common mistake that inexperienced board members do make. How can CEOs leverage their board? Issues will pop up in a board meeting where a given board member clearly has expertise. Uh, And it's great to just be like, hey, can we set another hour to work on this together? Or can you take this as an action item to to help me with over the next month? Do you want to sign that person up to work on that with you and then carry it through, right? So being really explicit, I think less useful is the generic, here are the three things I'm trying to do right now, right? You you don't want to do that. It's like, if you're in an emergency, you want to say, hey, you in the red sweatshirt, go call 911, right? You want to be really clear about who's doing the work, what's the work, and how do you want it done? (laughs) Right. The best way to get it done. Um, And I think this is another part of the investment process. Like when I'm doing diligence on a founder, they're doing diligence on me. Like I want to have a good working relationship with the founders in my portfolio because I'm going to be spending a lot of time with them. And I, and you know, I, I tend to have you know, I, I'm talking to my founders almost every day. People are calling my cell phone. We're chatting over dinner. We're talking, you know, I have a, a, that's kind of my work style. That doesn't work for everyone. And that usually becomes pretty clear early on um, in the process of getting to know each other. So it's also about, you know, who do you click with? And I think that's, that's an equally important part of picking a board member in addition to obviously experience, et cetera. Thanks for that. That'll be very helpful for uh, founders. So I wanted to talk to you about the coronavirus. Has this changed how you're investing or looking at particular markets? Totally. I mean, I would say that as the seriousness of what's happening globally became more and more apparent to us, and I think we'll all remember that, you know, 24 hour, you know, there would be Monday and 24 hours later, Tuesday, 24 hours Wednesday, we were living in very different worlds, right? So as the seriousness and, and really impact of what was happening became very clear, the first thing that we did um, was really hunker down and focus internally, right? So our number one job, this is where VCs earn, earn their stripes, right? And, and earn their paychecks, right? Our job is to um, get, you know, really deep with the portfolio right now, to make sure that all of our founders are being supported, that you know, if we need to help them figure out how they're going to cut burn or how they're going to bring more money onto the balance sheet, how they're going to get that runway extended, or you know, for the few for whom um, a global pandemic is actually beneficial for their product category, which is a very small few, how are they going to serve the increased demands that they're seeing from from consumers? Right. So really getting very deep with the portfolio. Um, 
we did have a couple of, you know, open deals that we were working on that we're still working on. So we are still actively investing, but I would, I'd be very clear about saying in the last couple of weeks, I'd say we've been 80% internal and about 20% everything else. Um, just because we feel like this is when our founders really need us the most. Talk to me a little bit about today with coronavirus. Are you spending more time with your portfolio companies and less on new deal flow and diligencing new companies? I truly believe, and our team truly believes, there will be phenomenal companies funded in the rest of 2020. So we are 100% actively you know, looking um, for opportunities. Uh, I think it was just as the offices were shutting down and right. you know that 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 transition we felt like we needed to pull in get with all of our boards make sure that you know we just we approved 2020 operating plans we need to redo those but we absolutely are um, looking at new companies we absolutely I think you know we have a term sheet out right now that we're you know intending to close so we're continuing to do deals and we certainly will be for the rest of the year it's just for that you know that moment in time where we really needed to to buckle down and get with all of our portfolios and make sure that we were really there for them no absolutely so are you are you shifting away in terms of any particular verticals for the last year to 18 months we were talking internally particularly about our consumer companies about kind of of an impending recession, right? There's been a lot of conversation for a while about, you know, an economic contraction. I'm doing funny quotes in the air. You know, lots of people were, were kind of saying that was coming. We've been in a bull market for a very long time. Uh, I don't think any of us expected this pandemic to be the thing that flipped the switch, but it has been. So we were really thinking a lot about, hmm, is this a nice to have or a need to have some time ago and, and, and started kind of applying that lens, especially on the consumer side. One of the things that really hit me hard was this question around what's needed, what defines a need and what defines a company that meets a need. Right. And I, I think that, you know, I've definitely received some kind of peak market absurd pitches. Like the one that stands out to me was, have fresh towels delivered to your house every day, you know, so you always have a fresh towel, which is just the height of silliness, right? So I really think we, we hit a point of, I almost want to just gluttony, like true gluttony in, in the market of people putting a lot of money into building unnecessary stuff. And I don't just mean the pandemic, I mean the recession that we're, that we're experiencing or going to continue to experience. Put a much sharper lens on what's needed. You know, how can companies truly uh, help people solve problems like childcare, like access to fresh, healthy food, like healthcare, right? There are big parts of the economy, big parts of the consumer spending budget um, that don't have great solutions right now. And I think that, you know, we've done a lot of research into how different consumer categories behaved over the last recession and not just a given category. Like if you look at pets, right, the spending in pets increases, but you want to look at what within pets grew, 
you know, versus, you know, was it, was it, uh, was it cut clothes or was it you know, discount kibble? It turns out actually both categories grew. But as you're mm-hmm. thinking about the, the kinds of companies that you're building, you want to think about, you know, what's this product category, but then what's, how does my niche within that category behave in a downturn? So we're paying a lot of attention to that historical data right now. Honestly, more of a, for me at least, uh, an ethical lens around, you know, how mm-hmm. can I deploy capital in a meaningful way? How can we create businesses that are valuable in really a broad sense of that word, right? Valuable monetarily, valuable society, delivering value. I think that will continue to be a guiding principle for us. Um, so those are some of the some of the early thoughts uh, on, on how we'll be investing on the consumer side. It's interesting what you say. I, th- I thought that's very, very on point because I got some responses from investors that were like, we're not changing our strategy. We're long term. We're we're thinking about things five, ten years down the road. So we're not we're not changing our strategy whatsoever. And then others that really actually were thinking about p- particular verticals that that kind of moving towards or anything like that. So you know, I'm gonna push back against those people right now. <laughs> okay. And be even more explicit. Like I think there are businesses that should not launch today that could launch in two years and be very successful. You know, and and even inside our portfolio, we have certain companies who are planning to launch in July, they're not gonna launch because um, the timing's not right. Does that mean that we stop investing, you know, in a, um, a total total sector of the economy? No, great founders will always, you know, find, find ways to build viable businesses. But at the same time, like I'm not sure I would invest in a boutique fitness studio right now, for example. That wasn't something that that we were investing in anyway. But I do think that um, that timing matters, and companies right now that have the chance to get to cash flow break even are, you know, going to be in a very different position in two years than those that need to burn a ton of cash in order um, in order to launch. So I don't know if that if that was like the right response, but I or how much of a strategy shift that is. But I do think that we very much have our uh, our eyes wide open about what's going on in the macroeconomic landscape. And I think that that will impact how we, um, who we deploy capital to. How do you think about optimizing for profitability as opposed to optimizing for growth? It really depends on the kind of company you're building. I would say right now, you know, in the portfolio, Absolutely. If we feel like there's a way to get our consumer products companies to cash flow break even, we want to build a plan to do that. That gives you the most flexibility. And uh, and it, for some kinds of companies, for some product categories, very possible, right? For other for other companies, not possible um, or not possible for, for some number of years, depending on kind of what they're building. So I think, you know, we have a strong, <laughs> strong orientation around companies that grow through a positive P&L. We are not grow, grow, grow at all costs um, kinds of investors. That's, that's just not our, uh, in our DNA. So I would say we have always been, we are today, we will always be focused on, on companies that have very healthy P&Ls. And that's a little different than some people, but I don't think today is the day for move fast and break things. I think today is the day for go slow to go fast. Um, so that's really what we're what we're focused on. Right. No, I think that's a great point. I, th- this is also a question that um, I asked Charles and wanted to, or I've also asked a number of different investors too, but I wanted to hear your thoughts about it as well. You know, it seems like uh, investing in consumer the past the past few years has been kind of out of favor. Do you believe that consumer is out of favor with investors? Yeah, I mean, Charles and I have had laughs 
about this, but people, VCs get kind of like, their interest gets peaked in something, you know? And then they're like, oh, that looks interesting and new. And they do that for a while. And then they get burned by a portfolio company or two, or, you know, the the, the heat changes, you know, in the press. Yeah. And um, and then all of a sudden, like, the only one is the enterprise SaaS, right? <laughs> right, just, right, right. For me, that's just not that interesting, right? The the, the economy big and varied, and of course, I do B two B businesses as well. But I think one of the beautiful things about consumer is you have this ability to shape everyday lives mm-hmm. in a very tangible way, and I think you have an ability to shape culture. And as someone who came from an art background and the cultural studies background. Those things matter to me, right? I, I I think the way that we lead, the things that we use every day, the the services that we interact with, I think they have the opportunity to to change what's considered normal. Think about the role that brands play, and I think that's very powerful. And it's something that I'm interested in, downtown downturn or not. So I, I'm I'm bullish on on uh, on consumer and um, and and continue to be very excited about consumer. Now that doesn't mean that I'm interested in your direct to consumer um, pony purse company, right? Like consumer is much more than um, discretionary goods, and I think that for a while, as you know, the D to C revolution kind of became a punchline. People took consumer to be synonymous with, you know, D to C woven baskets, D to C, you know, mid-century modern chairs, right? And kind of taking any any object, you know, within reach, I'm na- literally naming things in my room right now, and shipping them to your door. You know, that that's one very small slice of, of consumer, and that's one very small channel in, in consumer. So I think my my perspective is it's very hip to hate on consumer right now. But in the long run, you know, great businesses uh, in big markets led by strong founders are, are in, and those are the businesses that I want to back. So we're investors in an infant formula called Bobby Baby. Um, I also actually co-invested with Charles in that. You know, they're launching, uh, I won't say when, <laughs> but, you know, that's a product category where there's a real lack of innovation in the product because it's been controlled by a couple of conglomerates for a long time. And, you know, the vast majority of infant formulas in the U.S. are full of corn syrup, which is kind of crazy. But more than that, you know, I think what really compelled me about what the founders are doing is they're building a brand that's really about removing shame from the feeding journey for parents. The co-founders were both executives at Airbnb. They had babies while they were at Airbnb and, you know, had to go through the whole pumping formula, you know, just, just journey. And it was amazing to me when they started showing me the results from these focus groups and you just see these moms, you know, breaking down because they're so, they feel so shamed that they have to feed their child formula. They're yeah. having to do a full-time job. And by the way, pumping is a full-time job. So for me, that's a great example of a company where like we need to feed kids and we should feed kids the best thing that we can. Right. And the way that the industry is right now is not set up to do that. And the brands are not leading with the realities of what parenthood looks like today. So when I, I think about, and, and by the way, you know, the LTV for infant formula is like 
$500. So, you know, when I, and, and that's just, you know, obviously, you know, their first product, but I, I think when I think about consumer businesses, I'm not thinking about direct to consumer crystal salt lamps. You know, I'm thinking about like the next great brand to help parents feel empowered on their journey um, with products that they need um, and like, and better offerings that are out there. So th- that's the kind of stuff that I yeah. think about. No, I think that's a great example with Bobby Baby. What are a couple consumer trends or areas that you're focused on currently? I think two um, kind of interesting ones that I've been looking at. Um, one has been end of life. So mm. I've been looking at companies in cremation, um, end of life celebration, managing through that whole process. I think it's an extremely vulnerable time for people and it's a very antiquated industry, very fragmented. And I think, you know, we're at an interesting cultural pivot point where I think it was about three years ago, um, the number of cremations surpassed the number of burials in the U.S., so there's a real reduction in, um, in people who want to spend a lot of money and or feel the religious need to do a traditional burial. So, and by the way, are interested in putting resources into creating a really beautiful end of life celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you know, boomers are aging and Gen Xers and older millennials are going to be burying their parents, I think our expectations for what that experience can and should be like are going to shift. And I think there's an opportunity to create a suite of businesses and services that can really hopefully make the process less painful and more joyous and more affordable. So that's one sector that I'm really curious about. We haven't made any investments there yet, but I'm excited about it. Another another one that I'm really, really interested in uh, is childcare. Huge expense line. For people, um, we have really not great options in the U.S., and I think there's an opportunity to to do some interesting things in childcare, kind of pre-K childcare. So that's another um, space that I'm that I'm curious about. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I don't think we've had anyone talk yet about the end of life space and 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 the types of things that you're focusing on, uh, the celebratory uh, aspect new traditions, as well as cremations being up, all really interesting. Uh, and I completely agree with you in terms of uh, childcare, and especially at those at the very, very young ages about how it's, uh, it's not, a, it's not affordable, or it's very expensive for a lot of folks. And I could see how that could be an opportunity. Another area that is interesting. So I've been excited about investing in women's health since I started investing. I invested back at the Iron Yard, invested in some women's health companies and have I've done so at Bolt. It's really interesting how seven years ago, no one was talking about women's health. No one was talking about menopause. No one, you know, it was very taboo still. And over the course of uh, the last, you know, seven years, there's been a lot of activity and a lot of chatter about it relative to what had been. I think there's a misperception in the market that, oh, women's health is now over-invested in, right? Or, yeah, but there's that big birth control company. How many people really need birth control or how many really need? So that's one of my pet peeves, actually. I think that women's health still is wildly, wildly underserved. And by women's Mm. health, 
I really mean the full journey. This is a lifetime of care um, that has been really underinvested in and is actually, it's it's actually atrocious. (laughs) It's an area that I'm very excited about. I'm very focused on, I'm investing in. I hope that other investors will really do the work to look at the size of the opportunity and the breadth of pain points and and not just say, eh, too crowded, right? Because I think we're all, we're at a, we're at a moment where maybe it feels crowded because it used to be totally empty, but I would say the field is still pretty open. Cool. Thanks so much for for sharing that. What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? The diversity of VCs. I would 100% change who gets to be a VC. I think this is the coolest job. A phenomenal privilege to to get to influence and impact who has the resources to build the solutions that they want to see in the world and in the market. And I think that we need a lot of voices making those decisions and a lot more diversity in where those people came from and the languages that they speak and the, the, their family structures. And I, I really believe that, that if we changed that, there'd be fewer you know, tower de- towel delivery um, startups to reference in an early silly company that I mentioned, but and that's what I would change. Yeah, I think that's a great point about diversity, and and I agree. I don't think we need daily towel delivery companies. What's one book that inspired you professionally, and one book that inspired you personally? I really hate business books. I think they're by and large terribly written and not very interesting. So I've read many, many, many of them. But I would say that the conversation that I've had with founders, with VCs, with people, and with really my elders, the conversations that I've had with my elders have been more influential than any business book. I think business books are mostly trash. And I love literature. So if I'm going to spend time reading, like, oh, yeah, I want to read poetry. I want to read beautiful novellas. I want to be transported um, with aesthetics and ideas and philosophy. And so for me, I think one of the worst things we can do as VCs is to be VCs all the time. You know, I think we need to be people who are alive richly in the world. And that by doing that, we will be better, more empathetic, more prescient um, investors and, and advisors and board members. So I read poetry every night. I have a stack of poetry books next to my bed. And um, I really feel like that keeps my mind flexible and nimble and excited and questioning. I'm reading a book, a poetry book called Mercury by Ariana Rains. Um, she's a, an emerging um, female poet from Los Angeles. She's awesome. Um, she's got a lot of, starting to get a lot of recognition and, you know, Give, give it a shout. This will certainly be the first bit of poetry that we've had on to the to the, to the reading list. So uh, so very excited about that. That's yeah. great. That's great. Yeah. That will certainly be included in the in the show notes. Talk to me about what's one company that's on your anti portfolio, and if you had any learnings not investing in that company. Yeah, Flexport. We saw you know met Ryan early in his journey. I remember sitting next to Ryan at a dinner. And I was just like, this guy is fascinating. 
you know, just like, you know, multilingual, clearly very smart, curious person. And I was just like, hmm, this guy's got like, got something. And um, we had the opportunity to invest, you know, relatively early, but it would have been an out of model investment for us, you know, larger mm. tech, like less ownership, not what we were, what we were kind of doing at the time. And I do really believe in discipline with fund construction. And I, I'm not, I don't think it was necessarily a bad decision at the time. I think we were really wanting to make sure that we were hitting our ownership targets. And I think that is important for having good returns, but that is one where I kind of wish we had like bucked the rules and, um, and gone for the ride. Cause I think what, what Ryan has built is really exceptional. And we had a lot of insight into the need because we'd been investing in, you know, a lot of hardware companies that were dealing with like, you know, shipping and logistics. And we really understood um, how antiquated that market was, um, as did he. So I think that's one where, where I wish we'd, we'd, uh, we'd sort of said, screw the rules, you know, and, and invested. On to that point, is there a company that you might've invested that were a bit outside of the rules, broke a bit of the rules? Yeah. So we definitely bent the rules with Spin Launch, which is, you know, as a launching company, space launching company, satellite launching company. Mm -hmm. And we invested, you know, a little bit later and, um, you know, wrote a relatively large check for us, but it wasn't the level of ownership that we typically get. Um, but really felt one of our partners had a great relationship with the founder and um, was going to be able to be meaningfully helpful at the board level. And, um, and it's been a great journey so far. So um, that's one where I'm, I'm glad that we that we did break the rules. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Uh, so my last question, and I know I have uh, three minutes here, but, but my last question is, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? My advice for founders is to be people first. And I think that's never felt more real than in the last few weeks, as mm-hmm. we've all um, been called to remember that we are parents and spouses and <laughs> pet parents and, um, you know, uh, and children, you know, trying to take care of our parents and trying to get them to stay home and not go on their cruises. And, you know, I think, I think we've seen this collapse of what we thought our priorities were. And I really do believe that the founders that are in it for the long haul are going to be the ones that remember to pick up flowers from the grocery store and bring them home to their spouse and, you know, enjoy those little moments along the way, because to be a successful founder and for us, you know, success, (laughs) we're talking, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses, it's a long haul. Um, One of my partners likes to say lemons ripen faster than pearls, you know? Um, And so I think really focusing on the little pleasures of the everyday and, and tending to your health and tending to your family is probably the best thing that you can do to support the long-term success of your ability to be a great leader in your business. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice, especially so so relevant to what's happening today. I think that's that's you know, but you know, being ma- make sure you're a good person and, and and really taking that seriously. I think that's so important, and you know how you treat people, of course. Well, Kate, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sticking around for a little bit longer, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Totally, I had a great time, and uh, it was just fun to fun to chat. So have me back anytime. <laughs> And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Kate and having her share her thoughts on a variety of issues. You can follow Kate at Kate P. McAndrew on Twitter as well. 
If you're a founder and work on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and stay safe.